Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Ben Pronk. And I'm Tim Curtis. And Tim, we've had a few politicians on the show. We've had Jackie Lambie, we've had the two Andrews, um, and always had really interesting chats with them. And that's why I'm especially looking forward to today's guest, Senator David Van. Now, David Van, um, in addition, or as part of his uh, impressive political career, has recently drawn a lot of attention for his support uh, for the conflict in the Ukraine, including his visits there. And so we're going to explore what the conflict means to him, what it potentially means to Australia uh, and our region, and what he's learnt from his time both in politics, but more particularly uh, in his uh, support for and his visits to the Ukraine. So particularly looking forward to that conversation. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis, as always, with my co-host, Ben Pronk. How are you, Tim? I'm very well. How are you? Also well. And uh, joining us via Zoom today, Senator David Van. David, welcome to the show. G'day, Charlotte. How are you? Where are you geographically? I am in Melbourne. Ah, and that is home, born and bred Victorian boy, right? Completely, yeah. Born, uh, uh, well, born in the very centre of Melbourne at St Vincent's, but uh, grew up down Bayside. Brilliant. Could so, could could we yeah. start there so people can understand a little bit more about your upbringing and what got you to where you are now? How did growing up look, Bayside? Oh, fantastic! It was a boys' own adventure kind of life. So. Um, you know, always been a lover of the, the sea and the beach, so that was not far away. Um, had all the, uh, all the um, well-known golf courses very close to home, so we had all that parkland to, to roam through, ride our bikes through and you know, creating little jumps and pretending we were BMXs before BMX even existed as a, as a product. So it was a, it was a Interestingly, so you graduated school and, and went into a fascinating undergr- undergrad degree in horticulture. Was that the professional path that you thought you might start in? Because it didn't actually end up that way, did it? Uh, no, <laughs> you, could, you could say that. Um, the thinking there was I, I, I was originally thinking to become a, um, a landscape architect and I got the marks to get into RMIT, but I didn't have a design background. So they suggested I go to Burnley, do some of that, and do some design work on the side, um, and then come back the following year. I really enjoyed that first year 
uh, horticulture. And when I went back to them and said, listen, if I complete, at that stage, it was a three-year diploma. And if I, if I finish that, what would they give me as um, credit for the, the degree course? And they said, well, you know, you'd only have to do two years. So either way, it was five years I was looking at. So I finished off that degree, but halfway through, uh, they changed it from a, a three-year diploma to a, a four-and-a-half-year degree. So after I was uh, done with that, I, uh, I, I, I was done studying for a while. So I went from there, I went became a ski instructor. Um, <laughs> three years as a ski instructor, you know, this is a very linear path you'll see in my career. Um, and so I spent three years both here and overseas in Austria and the States as a ski instructor. And then um, when I was, thought time to get a real job, um, one of the things that the horticulture course had in it was um, it had three streams. It had your, um, your major, so mine was uh, landscape design. It had the science subjects, but it also had a business stream, so marketing and accounting. I, uh, I sucked at the accounting bit, but hmm. uh, I topped the, the marketing course most of the way through. So it was a, um, when it came time to think about a new career, what I was going to do, uh, marketing sort of loomed very large. And so from marketing, I went into public relations, pu public relations, public affairs. Uh, that got me close to government, uh, saw all the good work that gets done by elected people um, and thought, well, there's a path. Before we drop into political office, and we'll get to your postgrad degrees, uh, your postgraduate work um, in a little while, which are certainly more relevant to what you're doing now. But what's the transferability of an undergraduate degree in horticulture, being a ski instructor, public relations to a lesser extent? There's probably an understandable link there. But what have you taken out of those three pre-politics experiences that absolutely can be applied in your life now? Yeah, certainly they can. Um, the you know the horticulture was a, effectively a science degree. So uh, you know I learned the discipline of science of uh, looking for evidence and and, and the uh, strength of research um, and you know uh, and and academia in general. You know we, you can learn so much just from the academic record. You know, everyone uses Google to to look for answers for things. I tend to use Google Scholar. And then I'll go to the base research and, and finances that way. So it, it really helps in my life that way. Um, the ski instructor bit, I guess, if anything, it sort of brought me out of myself. Um, it gave me the confidence in front of people to be able to just be myself and to be able to communicate. Because um, you know, when you're working in a, a foreign country like Austria, um, you have to be able to communicate whether you can speak the language or not. So it became a lot of uh, you know, fun trying to come up with different ways to teach people um, when you couldn't speak to them. Uh, not that many of our clients were non-English speaking. It's the, the reason the Austrians hired us in the first place, but um, occasionally it would happen. Um, but that was a, a lot of fun. But also, you know, the pedagogical side of ski instructing, understanding uh, what learning is, how people learn, how different people learn in different ways. It, it taught me a lot from that point of view as well. There's some interesting views on specialisation versus generalisation. A wonderful book called Range by David Epstein, which talks more in the sporting domain, but says we lose a trick if we specialise too early. And it, it seems a lot of our academic and even our professional lives 
people are rushing to to specialise. Do you, do you have a view on that, given the the non-linearity of of your particular background? Uh, it, it, it you know it's certainly a path. Um, you know, it means you get to things later in life. Uh, you know, I got to politics probably later than I, I would have hoped to. Um, but you know, it does it does broaden your mind, does broaden how you approach problems. Um, and, and certainly for me, you know, uh, I see really my only one real true skill that I have is problem solving. Um, so for me, that background was invaluable in being able to uh, learn that skill. What was it about the lure of politics? I mean, you talked about the, your life in the PR firm as bringing you closer to politics, but specifically what was it that captured your attention that made you really want to be a politician? Um, I, I was never one of those people who always wanted to be a politician. What drew me to it was something that uh, you two guys would understand, um, and that's service. Uh, I could see uh, a path that um, where I could serve my country um, uh, in a different way to how you did, uh, but just as meaningfully. And it was that that being watching people um, getting close to seeing how people were actually serving their country and how they do serve their country in parliament, I'll, I'll use the plural, state and federal, that, uh, that really drew me to it. Uh, and we've never asked this question of any of our guests who are politicians, but, but how do you get into politics? Uh, what was the path that, you know, when you stepped out of the PR firm, how do you enter into a political career? Well, it was... Um, I joined the Liberal Party in 2013, um, and it was just being, of, again, of service within the party structure, uh, making, you know, always putting my hand up to do the tasks that no one else wanted to do. That gets you known around the party as, as a doer or someone who's, you know, who is of service. Uh, and that stands you in good stead when you put your hand up for pre-selection. And that's that's what happened with me. I was recognised for the work I'd done for the party and I, I won pre-selection in a field of six people um, and then ended up getting the winning the third spot on the ticket in the 2019 federal election, one which no one thought we would ever win. Most recently, you've captured the nation's attention by your trip into the Ukraine. You're the chair of the parliamentary Friends of Ukraine. Maybe an opening question. Why did you feel it necessary to visit Ukraine? Uh, it was more a question of how could I not go there? It was, you know, I've been, I was chair of that, that parliamentary Friends group for the whole three years that have, so far that I've been in, in um, parliament. And, you know, under the previous ambassador or the, the, you know, he always wanted me to go and, but, you know, the talks were about trade and 
uh, visas and those sorts of things. And, and then he left, um, he finished his term. And then the, uh, the Russians started building up on the border and I was working with their deputy head of mission uh, on, on that issue. And there was uh, a plan at one stage for me to go in earlier this year to uh, be a witness to the build-up. Uh, then the invasion actually happened the week that I was meant to be going in. So it got postponed until after the election. And the other week was the first real opportunity that I'd had um, post-election to be able to get in there. So uh, it was an incredibly important thing for me to do personally. Um, and I think on behalf of all Australians to go in there and tell the Ukrainians that, that they're not on their own, that the rest of the world is watching. We do care what's happening to them. And so I did a lot of media over there, um, obviously a lot of it via translation, um, but there's, uh, uh, I just wanted to get that message out to them, but then also being able to show Australians that uh, that we need to continue to care about Ukraine and what's happening there. And so going down into the Donbass to see um, our Bushmasters in action, to talk to the troops that are using them um, and to really understand what's happening on the ground, why they're needed, how they're being used, you know, talking through different ways that they could be using them, what other uh, weapons and or materiel they, they need, um, uh, you know, to continue this fight. And so be able to come back and talk to people about that and really push hard for them to continue to receive support, not just from Australia, but from, from other countries around the world. We obviously have a background in uniform and, and have seen, I guess, the military aspects of, you know, international relations and, and um, you know, foreign policy manifesto on a, a tactical sort of sense. And clearly there's that relationship. I'm, I'm really interested in your reflections sort of moving to the front line, both from a political and a personal perspective, um, in terms of what you saw there and, and how you saw, I guess, uh, political decisions or diplomatic decisions translating in a very human context? Yeah, well, it's, um, it, it's a great question. It, you know, it, in Kiev itself, life is going on as per normal. It's a beautiful, lovely um, European city and it was summer when I was there, so everyone's out and about, but, you know, everyone, was all, everyone was saying how quiet it was because about a third of the it's only about a third of the population still there. Um, people have either fled or uh, serving. Um, but you know life is pretty normal. I didn't even hear one air raid siren you know the whole time I was in Kiev. But it was important to go and meet with fellow parliamentarians, um, plus their their ministers, uh, foreign affairs and defence. Um, ministers and, and really understand what's going on. Also got to meet with some of their defence industry, uh, which was very, very interesting as well. Many years ago, we left the word battlefield behind and we started talking about battle spaces. And Ukraine's a great example of a battle space where communities are drawn into conflict, where there isn't easily distinguishable lines between you know those people who are carrying arms and those who are not. At street level, could you pass com comment on the resolve of the Ukrainian people? What did it look like, um, you know, in the streets and in the neighbourhoods? Yeah, it's certainly in, in Kiev, you know, like every taxi driver, uh, every barman, every barista, you would say they were just waiting for their call up, you know, that their 
they're, they're ready, willing, and able to go and serve. Uh, the amount of passion for this fight within the Ukrainians is beyond reproach. It, it is stark. It is strong. It is uh, visible. It is palpable. Um, you see it everywhere. You know, the street art through Kiev um, is all about, uh, you know, um, I'm not sure what the your PG rating is uh, on this, so I, I won't Explicit. necessarily quote the. Um, I won't won't exactly quote the uh, the soldiers on Snake Island, but uh, I'm sure most people have heard that that saying, you know. Um, and then as you move forward um, into the, I guess you call it the theatre of operations, you know, rather than the, the battlefield, um, you know, and the meeting the soldiers personally, you know, they are steely-eyed, they are strong. They are just ready and up for this fight as long as they're the, we keep on giving them the weapons to fight with. Link, linked question to the resolve of the people, Putin expected this to be over quickly for the conflict to fall in the favour of the Russians in short order. That hasn't been the case. Uh, staying nearly with the street-level view, is the conflict winnable or is the conflict losable? It's definitely losable. Um, you know, uh, and the, you will hear the Ukrainians at all levels say this. You know, if Russia stops fighting, then the, the you know the, the war will stop. Um, if Ukrainians stop fighting, then Ukraine will be stopped. So they see it as existential. Um, they're not prepared to to stop fighting um, as long as we keep on giving them the weapons to fight with. They will. Um, continue to fight. Of that, I have no doubt. It's interesting. Um, we get Clausewitz drummed into us as, as young military officers, and he famously said, war is an extension of politics by another means. Um, I'd argue, I guess, from my relative myopic military view, that we've had a fair bit of war and, and probably not a lot of politics in that grand strategy sense, um, and a lot of focus on uh, sort of being able to win the tactical fight, which we did in Vietnam, we did in Iraq, we did in Afghanistan, and, and yet didn't have that sort of ultimate strategic victory. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts about, uh, and we, we'll talk about the region in a second, but uh, about the, the nature of sort of the strategic drivers for, for recent conflicts um, and potentially the overemphasis on the, the military side. I mean, that is only one component, even if I imagine the Ukrainians are able to get their weapons uh, push back a Russian assault. The problem doesn't just go away, does it? Um, no, it doesn't. And, you know, as as the Ukrainians will tell you, and th this war has been going on for over eight years now. You know, this war didn't start February 24. So this problem has been, as you say, it's it's, it's been a, an, a, an ongoing problem. And unless uh, Russia is defeated um, in this war, and it pushed out of all of Ukrainian territory, the war will likely just continue on. Um, you know, there, there may be a stalemate, there may be a ceasefire, um, maybe even a peace agreement, but you can, you know, uh, rest assured that, you know, Russia won't stop until it, you know, it's annexed all of Ukraine or at least as much of it as it, it sees fit to, which I would believe would include Kiev. Mm. And so on top of, I guess, the military problem that we're facing here, there's there's clearly a, a statecraft and a, a political problem um, above that. You've uh, been 
quite critical of, of France and Germany, again, mainly on the, the military side. But do you see uh, there's a requirement at that strategic and political level throughout Europe and indeed the world to, to be doing more than just the weapons in, in the Ukraine situation? Certainly there, there is um, a lot more that needs to be done. And, and I'm, I'm certainly on the statecraft side of things, uh, I'm not critical of uh, France at all. I think um, President Macron has done quite a good job of um, uh, at, at that diplomatic statecraft level. So I, you know, I think he should be applauded for that bit of it. Um, the, the bit that I was critical about was not providing sufficient weapons um, and probably more aimed at Germany than, than France. You know, they have thousands of uh, version one leopard tanks sitting in warehouses that, that, that could easily you know, uh, be taken through into Ukraine. So I, I think um, at that statecraft level, there is uh, the sanctions are obviously biting in Russia now. I think there's more that can be done there. I think there, there really needs to be more political will in Europe to be prepared to turn off the Russian gas. Um, the Russians are doing it to them anyway. Uh, you know, again, this weekend, they're, they're turning it off. So there, there is a, a um, th this problem goes well beyond you know, Ukraine. Um, there, I think the, the unwillingness to, uh, or the, the, the fear of escalation is misplaced. I think there is a, a very good chance that regardless of whatever Europe or NATO does, um, you know, Russia could uh, escalate to a, a nuclear um, level quite readily. And we, you know, we're seeing that in Zaporizhia now with the, the shelling of the, the nuclear power station. Um, one sec. <coughs> um, your listeners might not be aware, um, but Ukraine has, I think it's either 15 or 16 nuclear reactors. Um, including the one in Zaporizhia, which is the uh, the largest in Europe, and it would only take one missile to hit one of those, or probably a couple of missiles, to be honest. Um, you know, and then you've got a nuclear problem. You know, that's not made from a nuclear warhead. So I think the the risk of nuclear escalation is real, regardless of what the West does. Um, I think what the uh, what I've, I've said many times is, you know, getting in and helping now keeps the fight and the escalation probably on Ukraine territory rather than spreading to other NATO territory. So, um, you know, I, um, you know, deterrence is deterrence, whether it's you know conventional or, or nuclear. You know, if you're not prepared to show how credible your, your deterrence is, you're not going to deter an enemy. So. I think statecraft can only go so far. Showing a willingness to provide weapons is truly the only way that, that this war can be won by Ukraine. And to be honest, it has to be won by Ukraine because uh, you know, I don't think anyone uh, believes for a second that, that Putin will stop at the border of Ukraine. And there's, there's many other states, NATO states, that, that will be at risk. And so I think getting in sooner rather lighter is, is critically important.
turning from Europe into our region, you wrote a very prescient article in early February, about two weeks before the uh, or this invasion on the 24th, uh, drawing parallels between the, the situation in Russia and the Ukraine and China's view of Taiwan. Um, and uh, saying that, that, that a, a Russian invasion, which ultimately ended up happening, could serve as a really dangerous precedent uh, for Xi. Um, what should Australia be doing here? So you've, you've mentioned that you know, we need to have that uh, consideration of, of a strong deterrent presence um, as we potentially see an escalation towards uh, more martial activity directed towards Taiwan. Um, what can or should Australia be doing uh, to, to try and stop that uh, before it does escalate? Um, again, I think this is not something Australia can do on its own. This is a, this is a, a global problem. Um, and certainly Australia and like-minded countries are the ones that need to be um, showing that there is a strong um, will to, to push back against any sort of aggression. And so we have the opportunity to do that in Ukraine. And that sends, I think, a very powerful signal to Xi or any other aggressors, you know, whether it be the North Koreans, the Iranians, um, you know, that, that the um, like-minded countries uh, are willing to stand up to them, are willing to do what is necessary to make sure that they don't benefit from, from aggression. And so, you know, I, th I think the Ukraine still serves as that, that example. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I, my reading of Xi is that he's uh, a lot more rational than um, Putin is. So I think he would be seeing how strongly united and how uh, far some countries have come. You know, just look at Sweden, Finland, etc. signing up to NATO. You know, Germany uh, increasing its, its defence spending. Um, you know, they would be very worrying signs, uh, I would have thought, for um, President Xi. Mm. And from an Australian perspective, um, do you think, uh, given, uh, I guess, the the real uh, interthatched trade relationships, you know, you, you mentioned sanctions before, um, and, you know, certainly countries like Germany did sting from uh, the, the Russian gas, but do you think that Australia could uh, successfully enact a, a range of sanctions as strict as what's been imposed on the Ukraine without it being some form of pyrrhic victory, without it, it sort of destroying our own economy? And that's a really good question. It, it, it's a, that's a really hard one. Um, no, um, we are too reliant on China, um, uh, but that's changing. Um, you're seeing a lot of signals around that, um, not for necessarily decoupling, um, but certainly diverging. Uh, I was at a, um, an institute just this morning talking about these issues and, and you're seeing certainly Australian businesses diversify their markets are working very hard at trying to find new markets, not necessarily walking away from China. But um, so in the short term, no, I don't think we could survive. I think it would be, as you say, a Pyrrhic victory. Um, and it would do massive damage to the Australian economy. But we've got to be prepared for that because if China invades Taiwan, um, you know, we won't have any say in, in that. It, and as soon as that happens, well, I'm pretty sure trade just stops regardless. So if we're not prepared to show that we're, uh, we're up for the fight and that we will um, stand up for ourselves and for um, you know, other liberal democracies, 
then you know that that gives G all the uh, you know when he's making his calculations, you know that gives him a lot of comfort that that um, or wouldn't give him a lot of comfort knowing that you know the coalition of the willing the right term you know are ready to stand up to him was china looks into our backyard are they thinking we're doing enough i mean in the in the abc article where you um you know throw down to france and germany and say quote get off your asses after you visit ukraine in the next breath uh, abc quotes you as saying um you know australia should open its embassy in the ukraine and you know you've ridden, you've run past the australian embassy um, and it's quite fine. The Canadians are back in the building. So why aren't we there? So to the point, are we demonstrating enough resolve in the Ukrainian theatre for the Chinese to, to really pay attention and think they would be serious? Yeah, um, great point raising about our embassy, and I'm certainly going to have a lot more to say about that next week in Parliament. Um, you know, it, it's it's such an easy thing. Um, you know, I met with our ambassador. I, I, he briefed me going in and I debriefed him going out of country. Um, you know, in a, in a, as you say, I went for a run, my morning run. I ran past the embassy deliberately to, I took a photo and I sent it to him. I said, still here, mate. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, why don't we put a flag up? And he, 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 he laughed and, and said, would love to. So um, it's a, it, it, all these things show resolve. Um, so it's it's no one thing that we should be doing. You've got to you know, bring together all these elements, and and show resolve. And, and opening the embassy is just one of those things. Sending more bushmasters, lots more of them, you know, again shows resolve. Um, you're looking at whatever other um, munitions that we could be sending. You know, speaking up, uh, you know, to other countries, and you know, whether it be France, Germany. Um, there's lots of others, you know, that, that can and should be doing more. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to see some some fighter jets um, going into Ukraine. Now, I don't care if they're F-15s, 16s, Typhoons, Griffins, whatever. Um, you know, the, the West has plenty of fighter jets that they could be, you know, putting into that fight. And having that air defence would show some serious resolve um, on behalf of the 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 of liberal democracies. Um, it would really change the the um, the fault lines on that on the war as they as they lie right now. Mm. If we could go just a little macro for a second, there, there's a wonderful Churchill quote that you know democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other ones we've tried. And certainly, you know, I don't think any of us would want to live in a system other than a liberal democracy. And yet, when we look at I guess the strategic horizons of countries like Russia and China that aren't limited by a four-year sort of electoral cycle, that don't necessarily have the same sort of domestic focus that we tend to see with democracies. Um, When we look at that kind of, um, I guess, what that gives you in a geopolitical sense, and concurrently when we look at some of the things that democracy is turning up, the, the kind of... Trump era in the States and we saw, you know, the sort of Duterte's in the Philippines and we saw, you know, Wilder almost getting elected in the Netherlands and Le, um, Le Pen in the in France. There's clearly, you know, as Churchill said, there's issues with democracy. Do you think it is sustainable? Do you think that as a, a system of government, it's going to be able to rally against these kind of big or emerging sort of authoritarian regimes like Russia and China in a strategic sense? 
Yeah, I, I truly do. Um, you know, I'd be optimistic um, uh, and say uh, I, I can't see, you know, short of um, an existential wipeout, um, I can't see how those authoritarian regimes, you know, can, um, can win over democracy. You know, people's free will, their freedom to choose, their, their ability to make decisions for themselves is too important for people. Um, now, uh, autocratic nations like North Korea, China, et cetera, where people haven't seen what that looks and feels like um, for decades, if not centuries, it, it's really hard to, you know, to explain to them what they're missing out on. But I think those of us that you know, have experienced the freedom of democracy, you know, that even your one little bit, your one vote every three years actually means something. And as you know, we've seen a change of government. So that only happens when people vote. You know, whether it was a good change of government or a bad change of government, well, the you know, people will judge again in another three years. But it's a, I think, if you, if anyone was to try and take that away from Australians or or any other democracy, I think you'd see a, a, a pushback harder than anything else. Like again, like we're seeing in Ukraine. I mean, on our own politics, that one little vote multiplied by millions of times, the people did vote, and, and in many ways it was a vote of no confidence in the Liberal Party. Could you offer a comment on the state of the current Liberal Party as we run a health check on why the party didn't do so well at the last election? Yeah, um, health check-wise, I, I think you know, we're doing really well. Um, when I look at look around the party room, uh, everyone's up for the fight. They're, you know, they, they, they know we lost. Um, no one's sort of cowering away from it. When you look at uh, Labor after the 2019 election, when I got to see them up close for the first time across the chamber, you know, they were crestfallen. You know, they were uh, so demoralised. The Liberal Party or the coalition, it's not like that. You know, we're, you know, I, I think it, it, I'm really proud of how my colleagues have all gone, right, that was a people's decision. We accept it. Now we are in opposition. Uh, we're up for this fight. We'll, we'll, we'll take it to them um, every step of the way. There's a lot of labelling seemingly inside the Liberal Party, particularly factional labelling. Uh, labelling, uh, You've been cited as being part of the centre-right faction. Are the factions helpful or necessary? Are they value-adding to people's perspective of the party? Um, yeah, I'm not sure that article was right. When the uh, journalist called me, he, he said, you're the last one on my list and no one can tell me which <laughs> camp you belong in. I said, well, you pick for yourself then. <laughs> Do you have to be part of I a camp, that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yes, while I was put in, in that section, um, you know, there... The factions aren't like, uh, certainly aren't like what they are in um, the Labor Party, you know, where you, you know, you belong to one. Uh, not everyone belongs to a faction in, in the coalition. Um, not everyone wants one. Sometimes they're helpful, you know, from a career point of view. Sometimes they they hurt you from a career point of view. Um, you know, and, and certainly in the federal party, it's not as strong as people you make out or want to make out. You know, they exist. 
um, but they're fluid. Um, they're 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 not the curse that uh, that everyone thinks that they might be. Can we turn for a second to David Van the Human? Um, we've been speaking a lot about David Van the Senator. Um, clearly, a lot of pressure in the role you're in. Um, a lot of sort of overt criticism and and all that sort of stuff. There's um, uh, immense sort of uh, you know importance in terms of the things you're dealing with as a as an elected representative. Um, we've been really interested in the topic of resilience for the last few years. How do you keep going? What sort of things do you use to sort of keep your focus, keep you on track, to sort of de-stress, uh, to to keep you sane, fit, and healthy? Uh, well. After running your own business for 15 years, you know, uh, I think you forget how to de-stress. Um, so uh, for me, you know, um, it, it's uh, I have two two passions. One's a, a more recent one, um, uh, but you know, I've always been uh, very keen on exercise. Um, you know, I grew up as a racing cyclist most of my life. My father was a racing cyclist uh, before me. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, always had a passion for cycling. Um, now I, I stopped racing uh, six or seven years ago, uh, and you know, now I tend to do a bit more work in the gym than I do. It's a bit warmer than on you know, winter mornings in Melbourne uh, to be in the gym than it mm. is to be out on less the road. traffic, less uh, mm. aggressive drivers. Yeah, well, there's some 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 big boys in the in the gym. You don't want to get in their way. Uh, Certainly not a little pipsqueak like me. Um, so it's a uh, so exercise is very important to me. And lately, uh, it, um, after completing a, a master's of international relations, um, you know, going back to study after so long away from it has has also been of great help. You know, it, it focuses the mind. Um, it it really does help me de de stress when I when I'm studying. Mm. There's a really nice picture of you and Josh Frydenberg arm-in-arm uh, arm on your Instagram. Was he unlucky in this last political round? Could you offer comment on, on Josh, his politics, him as a person? Uh, unlucky doesn't, doesn't go halfway to describing it. He's a wonderful man. He is, he's truly one of the, the best human beings you'll ever possibly meet. Um, I saw him briefly last Sunday. <clears throat> so, pardon me. Um, as a politician, uh, you know, you, you would never know which faction Josh was in. Um, he was friends with everyone, enemy of, of no one. Uh, from a policy wonk point of view, as smart as a whip, you know, got it, um, knew what the country needed, um, but was humble enough and is humble enough to always reach out to colleagues and, and ask for their opinion as well. Um, just a marvellous politician, uh, a loss to the parliament, and I hope one day he's returned. Mm -hmm. What about mentors? Um, who would you call amongst your mentors, past or present? Mm, that's a good question. Sadly, I, I don't know for what reason, I've not had a lot of them. Um, or any constant state ones. You know, people have come in and out of my life, and 
uh, given guidance, um, uh, you know, um, along the way, uh, you know, um, so I, I can't say I had any one mentor. Um, you know, I've got some great people, a mate of mine, George, uh, who will no doubt listen to this, has been a great help to me recently. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some really good people out there. Um, uh, but also, you know, uh, I, you know I, I read a lot, um, so get a lot of guidance from that. As I said, studying, doing a second master's um, at the moment, you know, I, you know I, I get a lot of input, uh, certainly for my work, and, and I found both masters are dovetailing in with my um, political work very closely because I, I spend so much time in the foreign affairs, defence and trade space, as well as, I should say, my other two policy pillars, uh, energy and environment. So it's kind of like the breadth, the five policy pillars I, I look at, but um, I'm currently doing a master's of um, uh, strategy and security uh, at ADFA through you know, the University of New South Wales. So it's, uh, it's fascinating. Our, our listeners are always thirsty for reading recommendations. Have you, have you read uh, anything good lately? Um, and as a bonus, do you read fiction? I'm, I sort of am a bit of a fan of, of literature, literature, fiction. Um, yeah, anything in the, the fiction space maybe? Uh, no, n- nothing in the fiction space. I just don't have time. Uh, certainly certainly while I've been studying, um, uh, um, well, two, two very quick recommendations. Uh, one is Jim Mullins. Uh, latest book mm-hmm. um, is that is well worth the read. Um, he's he's come up with some stuff there. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to debating him on some of it uh, <laughs> over a beer in coming weeks. Um, uh, the other one is Rory Medcalf's book on the Indo-Pacific. Uh, I think that's a must-read. You know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, um, I read his and Jeff Raby's books um, one after the other, so I could do. A- side-by-side comparison and that the uh, the intellectual heft of Rory versus Jeff was uh, quite a, um, outstanding. Um, so there is those. Uh, I'm also a big fan of podcasts. So um, obviously it's a lot on at the moment, uh, the touching on Ukraine plus issues mm. with the War on the Rocks um, yeah. podcast. Sorry to take it. I don't want to take any listeners away from yours but um, <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a great podcast to keep an eye on um, uh, a lot of the um, CSIS podcasts uh, I find are, are really quite good particularly on the China uh, and the Indo-Pacific issues um, so anything I can get where I can get input on you know, either what's going on in the Indo-Pacific or um, Ukraine I'm, I'm very thirsty for. Mm-hmm. What about your power song? We often ask our guests, uh, what is their power song? You know, when you need to move that 120 kilos off the bench, or in your case, maybe a little bit heavier than 120 <laughs> kilos. What's the song that you would be playing to just give you that extra inspiration, motivation? Uh, easy one. David Bowie, Young Americans. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, you know, always been a big Bowie fan. Um but yeah, just the, the both a, I don't know, the, not so much the, the the lyrics, but that you know, just some of those, um, uh, you know, where it really lifts towards the end. You know, I get a, a big 
pump out of that. Mm, mm. I, I was just going to say, we, we have shared our power songs. Um, Tim's a, a Jimmy Barnes fan, and, and mine was a, a Moby song for a long time. Although I watched that Elvis movie. In fact, Tim and I watched it in the UK recently and rediscovered some of his stuff. And there's a, a version of Burning Love with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. And, and you talk about lifting. Um, it's just this amazing, you can almost feel the, the sort of, mm. I don't know, the young violinist in the 60s who's, who's used to playing, I don't know, Chopin or whatever and, and suddenly playing Elvis. It, it's a brilliant track. Yeah, it's like uh, Neil Diamond's um, uh, Crunchy Granola Sweat. Yeah, you know? yeah, like, yeah. Uh, the, you know, the Hot August that, Night. You know, just, yeah. Hot August Night and, you know, the crescendo, you know, at the end of the, as the, as the orchestra builds up. Um, you know, often put that on at dinner parties, you know, after, you know, when you're you know, maybe having a, a cognac at the end of it and people go, oh, what's, what, what are we listening to now? And then they get it and by the end of the song, everyone's dancing on the, on, on the seat or on the table. It's a, it's a ripper. Probably not one for the dinner party, but one that I find particularly inspiring has no lyrics, the 1812 Overture. Mm. I mean, that, that is just yeah. a ripper piece of music that you know, culminates like no other piece <laughs> of music. It truly, truly does. And, uh, you know, having just been in Ukraine, um, yeah. you know, for that, that not far from where that uh, fight took place, mm. um, yeah, the, the, the thought of listening to it did cross my mind while... I was driving down to the Donbass. Have you been to India? 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 Well, you better get some of it, India. Yeah. Um, what's next? Political aspirations, uh, personal achievements or endeavours, meaningful challenges. What's next for you, David? Yeah. Um, well, politics as usual for, for the foreseeable future. Um, if the right job opportunity came up sort of at the end of the term, um, you know, to go do something meaningful, um, you know, uh, I, would, I would look at that. I wouldn't mind spending more time, uh, you know, in a, in a commercial setting. Um, but it would need to have that international mm. perspective for me, you know, to, to attract me to that. Um, certainly working on the second masters at the moment, as I said, but also gotten back in my mind, do I, am I doing this or do I really want to just do a PhD? Um, so um, my master's thesis was on multilateralism in the Indo-Pacific. And uh, and I could see that being turned into a PhD uh, pretty easily. So, um, well, not easily with a lot of work. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I, I've got the direction of where I, you know where where I want to go, and uh, I I know where I need to go. Do ask the questions and look at the do the the research. So, um, yeah, that's that's a, another possibility that, uh, that that might come along. Well, it certainly sounds like you will be continuing to fill your unforgiving minutes with some some pretty quality distance run. Uh, Senator David Van, thank you very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, gents. It's, it's been a great uh, hour talking to you. Really enjoyed it. Uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks, David.
now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60. Bedroom.